The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. If you happen to have watched Real Time with Bill Maher on January 24th of this year, you heard the notoriously cynical television host say to one of his guests, I'm not one of those people who uses the word hero a lot, but it easily rolls off my tongue with you. You are one of my heroes. That guest was Ingrid Newkirk, and I am thrilled to pieces to say that she is our guest today on the Main Street Vegan program. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran, your host for this show. And I know that 99.999% of you are listening to this as a podcast on some wonderful platform while you're walking your dog or driving your car. But if you happen to be listening live on Wednesday, February 5th, and you have a question For PETA's founder, Ingrid Newkirk, you can actually give us a call, 816-251-3555. Ingrid Newkirk founded PETA in 1980, and she is at the helm to this day, saving animals at such a steady clip I can't keep up, and in her spare time, writing with Jean Stone, a fabulous new book, Animal Kind, Remarkable Discoveries About Animals and Revolutionary New Ways to Show Them Compassion. Welcome, Ingrid Newkirk. Thank you, Victoria. It is just fabulous to have you here. You're actually in my living room. I keep telling my dog and my pigeon, Ingrid Newkirk is going to come over. What do you think of that? And I don't know what the pigeon says. The dog says, may I have another treat, please? So Ingrid, why a book? People say this is no longer the era of books. So why have you given us this great gift in this form? Well, you can get Animal Kind in book form and you can get it as an audio book too, which apparently is quite popular. So you can download it. But the reason I was on Bill Maher, if I can go back to that, is because he did promote the book and he is the kindest man. People don't know that about him. He's the one, I think you know this, who said, 
my dogs are the only ones that when I get home greet me as if I'm the Beatles. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> and he is just so decent and nice, and he understands how vulnerable animals are. So I was very grateful that um, he saw animal kind and he said, come on and talk about it. Oh, that's wonderful. And I think that's part of the great power of books even today. It, it gets people in powerful places noticing, and it's so wonderful that this book is being noticed. So tell us about this one. I know you have several books to your credit as well as many other things. What's special about Animal Kind? Well, I think Animal Kind's time has come. You know, we talk about the Anthropocene and so on and the, all the things that we're doing to the earth. And I think there's a wake-up call now for many people that humankind is just one thing. But really, where is our place in the universe? Who are we? And we are all animals. We're not gods. You know, as Peter Singer says, we're not gods and the animals aren't trash. We are animal kind. But the book is mostly about the other species, the ones that perhaps you have a dog or a hamster in the home or a bunny or a pigeon like Mr. Thunder. It's <laughs> so wonderful. I can't stand it. Anyway, um, and you know about them and you've come to love them. You've come to understand much about them. But there are so many animals who just get short shrift. We don't tend to attribute to them the things we should. We don't know enough about them. And I know we're busy. We have, you know, jobs and family and occupations and entertainments. Um, but really, once we start thinking about who animals are, not what, but who animals are, and their incredible emotional lives and their abilities, the way in which they communicate with each other is extraordinary. It's we who don't know what they're saying. They pay a lot of attention to what we're saying, and they often do understand a lot of what humans are saying. We just can't reciprocate because we're not um, playing such close mind. But I thought once we see our place in what Roger Fouts calls the great orchestra of life, that every living being plays one instrument, you put them together and you've got an orchestra. Once you see that we are animal kind and that they are extraordinary, then hopefully the second part of the book is all about how that can inform your behavior, the things you do, what you buy, what you wear, what you eat, how you entertain yourself. You start to hesitate and think, oh, I know that about elephants. They shouldn't be standing on their heads, you know, or they shouldn't be chained in the, behind the circus. Or I know that about where Angora comes from now, and I know who rabbits are and their incredibly complex lives. I'm not going to wear that anymore. So those may seem like simple decisions or choices, but they're extraordinarily important because they make the difference literally between life and death for all these animals. And so the book is... Written in an upbeat way, it's I look up crammed with facts, things I didn't know about when I started writing them, and I collect information about animals. And then uh, hopefully the second part is your helpful guide to how you can improve your relationship with animals in myriad ways. Mm. Well, that's what Peter has been doing for 40 years, and it, it's so interesting that you've now tied it in with a book about animal behavior. So just tell us some animal stories. Why don't you start with a pigeon story since we <laughs> happen to have a member of the pigeon family nearby? Well, I'm very partial to pigeons. Um, they're one of those uh, looked down upon animals. You know, I'm so sick of people saying rats with wings 
I mean, rats are featherless pigeons, and they're all wonderful if you get to know them. We have this pest species idea, which is just so discriminatory and so ignorant. Um, pigeons mate for life. I think we have something like a 45%, I may have that wrong, divorce rate in the United States. And pigeons will be with that mate forever until something bad happens to them or one dies. Both the male and the female pigeon make milk in their crops for their babies. So something to think about, Valentine's Day coming up. If you see a pigeon with their beak down another pigeon's beak, they certainly could be kissing because they do kiss. They preen, they close their eyes when they're kissing. They're very loving, but also could be a daddy or a mummy feeding their baby. And those parent birds could also teach us lessons in that regard because they take turns feeding and caring for and babysitting that child. They will come and go on the nest with no gap in between. And I think of all the human parents who say, he's not carrying his end of the deal. Well, where is he when I... Um, not the pigeons. P pigeons understand. They both have equal responsibility. Oh. And you talked when I went to your book signing at Barnes & Noble here in New York about snails. You know, so often people say, oh, well, that's an invertebrate species. But you had some fascinating information about that little invertebrate. Well, I'm glad you brought up snails because I particular um, thorn in my side is the fact that if an animal is small, we tend to really disrespect them or uh, underestimate them. And I, if you think about it, uh, there is actually a giant African snail who is the size of a chihuahua. And you can hold him, or actually you should say them because they're hermaphrodites. You can hold them in your arms and you can pet them. There's also this fabulous little um, video on the Internet. And the Internet has done wonders for learning about animals. And it shows a snail who is on someone's uh, fingers and they're running a tap. And the snail comes out of her sh his, their shell, <laughs> their shell, and puts their head just under the start of the, the cascade of water and then enjoys it so much and starts turning their head and putting a horn in and then putting the other horn in, those little horns they have on the top of their heads, and just enjoying this bath so much. But I think the fact you're thinking about is if you take a snail away from their home, and I'm not recommending this, <laughs> uh, that snail knows it's their home, like anybody else's. That's their home, and they will try to come back. And they will come back at the rate of 0.029 miles an hour. Even if it takes them two years, they're bound for home. That's extraordinary. That just almost feels like now we'll just pause <laughs> and ponder that. So I know everyone needs to be buying, reading, getting it from the library, where however you get it, Animal Kind, Ingrid Newkirk and Jean Stone. But just give us one more story, one of your favorites. <laughs> well, I learned, and I didn't know this at all, that reindeer actually can change the color of their eyes. So a reindeer's eyes in winter are blue. And in summer, they're golden. And they see in ultraviolet. So they're so much more attuned to what's going on with the weather, 
in the skies, all that sort of thing. Of course, many, many animals are so much more attuned. And they manufacture their own vitamin D because there's so little sun where they live naturally that their bodies actually have figured out how to manufacture it without the sun. So all these animals have amazing abilities, amazing talents. You know, they can fly forever almost without stopping for food and drink. Not like us. We go to the airport and it's nothing but restaurants. We get on the plane, they give us a snack. They ask us if we want to buy food and we're only going on a one-hour flight. The little godwit is a, a New Zealand bird, flies 7,000 miles without stopping for anything. So, you know, we need to be in awe. We do indeed. And I think that's one of the many, many um, wonderful traits of, of PETA that you show us the beauty of the animals and where we are in relationship to, to non-human beings. So you've been around so long as an organization <laughs> and you've really put the, this whole thing on the map and you've been successful from the very beginning. You had your first mega success within a year of PETA's existence. So was that luck, right place at the right time, or are you just the most incredible strategist that some politicians should be paying you $50 million a year for your secrets? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. It's often a combination of things. And certainly I think people were, and many people still say to me, when I'm at a book signing, they'll say, I didn't know I could do anything. And then I got something in the mail from Peter. And they're talking about way back when, because we've been around for 40 years. And to me, the most magical words in the universe are, how can I help? And when people say that, um, we're right all, we're on top of it. You know, we say, here are umpteen ways you can help because animals need all the help they can get. They've got all the enemies. They've got all the complacent people. They need you. If, if you are somebody who cares, never underestimate how powerful you are. You've got the power of the purse. You've got the power of the voice. You're in a country where you can say and do what you want, basically. And you've got, as a consumer, enormous power. But anyway, I think the Silver Spring Monkeys case, we knew where we were going. And when we formed the group, because we wanted to see what was happening in labs currently at that time, which was 1980. And then when we did see, we wanted to show the world. People felt absolutely helpless. They thought, oh, it's just a few animals. They're being used in really valuable experiments. I'm sure they're treated well. And it's for something very important. We were able to rip the lid off that and say, no, it's millions of them. And they're used for every fool thing you can imagine. And they're treated worse than dirt. And when we showed that to people, people said, so many people, we knew it. We just knew it in our hearts. What can we do? And so we said, you can start by not buying cosmetics that are tested on animals, because back then, that was very, very difficult to do, and there was no campaign. So we were strategic. We were also very forthright. We didn't mealy mouth our message. We said, anything you do is great. Take any step, one step, marvelous, that what we're aiming for is animal liberation. The way Peter Singer wrote in his book, Animals are not ours to use. They don't belong to us. They are their own people, and they need to be respected and left in peace. So we never 
pulled any punches. We always said that, but we said, anything you do is great, but be on that march towards that final goal. One of the other things that's unique about PETA is I think you were the first organization to bring celebrity power to bear to help animals. So I'm just curious, who was your first celebrity and did they come to you or did you go to them? They actually came to us. It was Loretta Swift, Mm -hmm. who was in MASH Mm -hmm. at the time. And she heard about the Silver Spring Monkeys case and she called us up. Remember, those were the days before you had the internet. And she found our number, called us up, and she said, I would like to help you. So I said, well, we're about to have a march, the first ever march against vivisection on the National Mall. And, of course, I thought it would be five people, but it turned out to be a bit more than that. And um, would you mind recording a message that we could put on the radio saying that you're against vivisection. She said, I'll do it. So I sent her two. And one was very mild because I thought she may not wish to say anything very strong. And one was very strong. And she chose the strong one. And so that ran on radio stations in Washington, D.C. And a lot of people turned out for that march to say, animals are not ours. And I think we had a poem about loneliness and being in a cage, and wanting to be with your own kind, and the desperation of animals in laboratories, and it really struck a nerve. That's amazing. (laughs) I love your history and all that you do. Let's bring it right now to this week. Just uh, help us out. What have you done this week for animals, (laughs) Ingrid? (laughs) Well, actually, Victoria, I have a couple of things I do all the time. Um, and then I'll get to what Peter does, but this is an activist tip okay. that I hope people will like. One is, um, you, everybody knows about tithing. Well, I do something a little bit different, which is a gift tax to animals. So if I buy myself a latte, I pay a tax to the animals. If I go on vacation or I go to a movie, which I do, I'm very fond of films, um, I will pay a tax to animals. I think that's my luxury tax. And it, it, it adds up. I mean, I'm not rich. I don't make a lot of money. But there's always enough for a little tax. So <clears throat> that goes a long way. And you can earmark it for what you feel it should be used for. The other thing is, I try to do no fewer than three extracurricular things a day. Like talk to the Uber driver about diet. Leave a magazine, of maybe a vegan starter kit somewhere. Post something on a bulletin board. Write a letter to the editor on my own time um, or in passing. But what Peter has done this week, let me see. <clears throat> um, we have this nifty thing that comes across our uh, screens on the computer every day and tells us a success story that if there is one. And almost every day, I get at least one. Pano Ricard, the makers of Absolute Vodka, we were very annoyed because they sponsor bullfights in Spain and other places. And we have been campaigning. And thanks to our members and supporters, listening and sending emails and listening to the alerts. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Pernod Ricard has just withdrawn from all sponsorship of rodeo, of uh, bullfights, which is 400 separate bullfights. And that will be huge. That will really help us in our campaign to knock all of them out of Spain. We also heard this week 
from, we haven't released this yet, but a major retailer who has decided that they are not going to um, use alpaca, mohair, or angora, or cashmere anymore because of our negotiations behind the scenes. And you're hearing more and more of that happening because people are waking up to the fact, as we've said, you can be vegan and diet, but all those animals, if you're wearing them, they are all eaten. Think of that. I mean, that's you're not vegetarian if you're wearing animals, let alone vegan, because sheep, who are so awfully barbarically sheared, don't ever think it's a haircut, for their wool, um, they're eaten, they're mutton, they're lamb. Um, all these animals, even the ones that are taken for feathers, like the ones J-Lo wore at the Super Bowl, how many feathers was that? And yet all those birds go into chicken salad and even ostrich medallions in, in exotic so-called restaurants. Alligators are eaten, you know, that they, they're also served. But alpacas are eaten, everybody is eaten. So you can't even be vegetarian if you're wearing any of them. Um, so that was a great breakthrough. And then we just got news today that a bird experimenter who does terrible things to wild birds, captures them, confines them, experiments on them, kills them, that she has lost her funding. So we haven't released that yet, but that will be released in a day or two. Wow. Well, I guess you have uh, paid for the space you take and <laughs> the air you breathe for today <laughs> and this week. It's because we have good people. I mean, really, we're not a commune. We're a hard-working office, mm -hmm. and every single person who works there has to pull their weight. Mm -hmm. And we have to strategize, and we have to enlist our members' help, and that's the best thing in the world is anyone who cares can do so much. Well, this is one thing that I love about PETA. Everybody's heard of PETA. And I think even people who care about animals, I think sometimes people think, well, I don't have to belong to PETA. Everybody belongs to PETA. Well, not quite everybody, but how many people do? Well, I think we have 6.5 million members and supporters. And that counts kids. I mean, it's not that they pay dues. Yes. But they can veganize their cafeteria. Absolutely. They can have a stand and give out a vegan ice cream to make sure everyone knows it's available now, even from Ben and Jerry's. Mm -hmm. All the unhealthy foods are now vegan. Um, and they can do, they can show films, they can do things. It's activism that counts more than anything. We obviously, we're very grateful to everybody who funds us because that allows us to hire more investigators, get more equipment, do more undercover things. Um, do everything on the internet that we do and to engage youth and all these marvelous things. But really, your life as an activist, wherever you are, rich, poor, college student, um, anybody, professional, homemaker, you are the cat's whiskers. One of the things that I know being a longtime member of PETA, that word member when you think about there's kind of an old-fashioned way that, that your, your arms and your legs are members of your body, like they're really part of it. And I have always felt like really a member of this organization. And even though now you're so big, and I think sometimes people think, well, I should join some little bitty thing so they know I'm there. No, they'll know you're there. <laughs> it doesn't matter that you're one of six million. There's, there's something very, very special about PETA, and I think that it's this tremendous devotion 
and commitment to the animals spills over. And PETA has that same connection to the members. Well, thanks for saying that. I, it drives me insane. I mean, there are countless, and I belong to quite a few of them, small groups that do excellent, wonderful work. I always say, whatever group you're going to belong to, have a look at their track record. Don't just see any, you know, sort of general information. Look at their track record and make sure that they're actually accomplishing something, not just whining or saying they care. So that out of the way, I don't understand this business of, well, you know, I'll just give my money to small groups. Small groups, great, but there's something we shouldn't be ashamed of wanting to be very, very big. As big as Peter is, it is nowhere near the size of even one of our adversaries. I mean, you take one major pharmaceutical company where we are trying to get them to stop, say, the forced swim test where they drop the little animals into the beakers of water. They are so petrified. They struggle and they swim and they swim and they swim. And someone simply records how long it takes them to stop swimming. Now, to go after, and we've just won Pfizer and we've won Bristol Myers, we need Eli Lilly on board now. We just bought stock in Eli Lilly. To do those things needs a lot of force. It needs a lot of people and it needs a lot of funds. So we can knock out some really, really big things because of our numbers and because people fund us so that we can have people devoted full time. We're not talking about one abuse. I wish we were. We're talking about a gamut of abuses from everything that you can ever imagine is done to animals. And we take on almost all of it, not quite, but almost all of it. And the other thing that I love about what you do is you do lots of things for large groups of animals, and you will go to the ends of the earth for an animal. And that's very special. Well, I mean, look at us all. We all have a heart for animals. And uh, when we see an animal in front of us or we hear about a horrible situation with one animal, it might not be the most strategic thing in the world, but we all find ourselves pulled in that direction. And I always say, you know, it's very hard, though. In some instances, people are out to home animals, to find a new home for animals. And obviously, it's worthwhile. If you think about it, strategically, it's better to work at the root of homelessness, which is sterilization, spay, neuter, spay, neuter. But people often will put thousands of dollars into saving one animal through a lot of surgeries, where the shelters are full of animals who don't need surgeries, and you could spend the same amount of money, you know, helping a larger number and going to the roots and sterilizing. But we all do this. We just have to sometimes try to keep our strategy in mind. I love your strategies. We'll be back right after this. Practical spirituality. Positive messages. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan 
with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back, everybody. So happy to have you here. If you are new and want to know more about what goes on in the world of Main Street Vegan, please visit www.mainstreetvegan.net, where our blog this week is something I wrote, and it's how to fall in love with the morning. (laughs) So if that's something that you would like to do, please take a look at all of the other things that we do to just make the world little more vegan, little kinder. I also want to uh, remind you, uh, I believe this is the second time, and I'll be doing it quite a bit between now and next September, about a very special conference that is happening in September of 2020 at Unity Village, Missouri. Now, Unity Village is where this radio show, this podcast comes from, and there is going to be the first ever Vegan Spirituality Forum and Retreat, A World That Works for All. So you can just Google Vegan Spirituality Retreat, and you'll find it. I will put all the information on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. Dr. Milton Mills will be there, Dr. Will Tuttle, but most importantly is you will be there. And if you are part of a church, a synagogue, a mosque, a yoga center, and you wonder why everybody there is not on board for the animals, well, you know what? We're going to figure it out, and we're going to send you back with tools to use to get these people whose hearts are in the right place to be in all the right places. In other words, on board for animals, Vegan Spirituality Forum and Retreat, September 2020, right there in the Middle West. You would fly into Kansas City, Missouri, and we will all have so much fun, just like we're having right now in this conversation with none other than PETA founder Ingrid Newkirk, author with Gene Stone of Animal Kind, Remarkable Discoveries About Animals and Revolutionary New Ways to Show Them Compassion. So Ingrid, I know that you're just at the beginning of your book tour, so how do people find out if you'll be in their area? If people go to PETA.org, there is a calendar of where I'm going. I'm off to Tampa, Atlanta, oh, San Diego, Sacramento, um, I'm not sure, Colorado and Chicago eventually no. are getting around. I nice should... places. Yeah, <laughs> very nice. But you know, it's a little bit like that movie, if it's Tuesday, it must be Belgium. <laughs> you know, you don't really get to see much of it. Although I was in Phoenix yesterday, I looked out of my hotel and there were those beautiful red rocks. And I thought Aww. about all the coyotes and all the squirrels. There are ground squirrels that are beautiful there. All the wonderful wildlife in the desert that you don't even think exists. Well, it's, it's a wonderful world when you remember who's in it and how different we all are from looking, but how much alike we all are and what we really want and need. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the big things about the book is to talk about it doesn't really matter what package you come in. You know, you could have fins or feathers or fur or you could just have bare skin, but inside everyone there is a someone. And uh, it's like our, our posters that show a chicken who is the most beautiful chicken in the world and she's looking right at you very quizzically and it says, I'm me, not meat. And I think that's all of them. You know, you imagine what they go through going to the slaughterhouse, for example, and you think, oh, well, 
No, not a well. If you were there, and I've certainly stood in enough of them and looked, everybody would be the same. We're just petrified and smelling it and not wanting to be there. They are all us. We are all them. We're all animals together. Amen to that, and and kudos to you for all that you do and continue to do. So with the press release that came with your book, it gives an overview of 40 years of PETA, which is (laughs) utterly stunning. But one of the things that jumps out is how many huge companies PETA has persuaded to do things differently. Um, 1989, uh, Avon, Benetton, Amway, uh, Hasbro, stop testing on animals. Uh, 2000, PETA convinces Gap Inc., J. Crew, Liz Claiborne, Clarkson, Floorshine to boycott leather from India and China, countries in which leather production causes immense animal suffering. 2007, PETA convinces Palm Wonderful, PepsiCo, and Coca-Cola to end all animal tests. So we're not talking about you convinced Joe's Diner on the corner to put on a Beyond Burger. We're talking about giant corporations. And when I was reading this, that phrase, too big to fail, came to mind. It's almost like these organizations would seem too big to care, but you made them care. How'd you do it? Again, I think it's because of our members and supporters, because we put the word out. The first thing we do when we find out something horrific is being done to animals by a corporation is we write privately to them. We tell them what we know. Sometimes it's a whistleblower. I just worship whistleblowers, the ground they walk on. Thank you, thank you. You know, sometimes they're people just making a delivery or uh, fixing up an electrical problem or something, and they blow the whistle. So, and that's how we found out about, by the way, crash tests on animals. And that was a secret closed lab. And somebody went in to fix the floor, I think, and they saw that there were pigs uh, being slammed into walls in these devices, and they, they called us. Anyhow... Um, once we find out, we ask to meet, and often, especially in the old days, they will just blow us off. They have n- want nothing to do with us. They think they are too big. You hit the nail on the head. They don't think that anyone can make them do anything, because it's often about money. It's not about ethics. And so we then escalate. And um, in that car crash test, of course, it took a lot. We started out writing. We started out picketing. People were sending letters. We ended up, people donated their cars to us. It was absolutely amazing. They'd have a used car, and we would um, smash it up. We'd paint it with slogans and smash it up outside an auto showroom. And still the companies didn't budge. And in the end, we were actually setting fire to our donated cars outside auto showrooms. And that is what it took before they listened to us. These days, we don't have to usually be that theatrical. We buy shares in the company. We attend their meetings. We actually, you know, will lie down if we need to in a board of regents meeting, such as at Texas A&M University. And they know they're not going to get rid of us. We're persistent. We've declared a target, and we are not going to stop until they change. They're the ones who have to change. We're not going away. So I think in the end, they get that message. Sea world, you know, bit by bit, we're chipping away. Um, that's another victory this week. They've stopped standing on dolphins' faces and riding them like surfboards, which we said, can't do that. And they said, yes, we can. And so we showed them that 
they were going to hear on the radio, on billboards, pickets, and they stopped today. So they still have a ways to go, and we are not letting up until they let all those orcas, all those dolphins back into the sea. So it's tenacity and it's members and supporters being part of that campaign. That's what's so vital. Oh, it's so exciting. So I think about something like SeaWorld and, and how your work is on two fronts, getting them, like you say, chip away, chip away, one atrocity less at a time, but also educating consumers. I met someone in a non-vegan context who mentioned that she had just come back from taking her child to SeaWorld. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it, it was it, it just like, what, what? And yet people still need education. So we've got that front to work on too. They do. One of the, my little extracurricular activities, because I travel so much, is if I'm in a hotel and they have SeaWorld brochures and those, you know, what you can see locally, mm -hmm. um, I, is I take them all out and replace them with something benign from another rack. And um, I won't allow people to be influenced by that because it's a disservice. It's anti-educational. It's the wrong thing for children to see, and they shouldn't be advertising. And I ask everybody to do that. Even if you're not staying at a hotel, pop into one. If there's one, if you're in California, for example, or San Antonio or, um, in Florida, and just, you know, feel that you need all those SeaWorld brochures for yourself. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's so wonderful. I, I do things, you know, I still like paper uh, periodicals and subscribe to, to some and, and get some as a member of organizations. Always take them down to the nail salon. And people pick them up, you know, people just reach for them and pick them up. Well, so. I'm going to tell a story about you because you just told me you go to the gym in the morning. Mm -hmm. So that is fantastic. I love the fact if I ever get near a gym, which is becoming a replicate occurrence these days. Um, I always, like you, I take a stack. And it's wonderful. You see people on a Stairmaster <laughs> captive for 30 right. minutes or more, and they're reading a Peter newsletter or they're reading the Vegan Starter Kit. Mm. And if I go on a plane, a bus, a train, always in the seat backs. And my trick is I put them in the airline or the train or whatever magazine, if there's one, because then when people open that magazine, especially near the food section, mm -hmm. there's the vegan starter kit. Ooh, love it. Love it. So speaking of working out, uh, I do a little community yoga class twice a week in this building, which is delightful. And one of the students is from China, and she went home for the holiday and is now on self-quarantine because of the coronavirus. Well, there's actually an animal connection to that. Can you tell us about it? Totally. I mean, every single influenza is traced back to animals. And if we didn't capture wild animals, didn't domesticate animals, and didn't shove them into, I mean, you saw probably photographs or, or a video of that market in China where this uh, coronavirus originated, filthy pens and you may think oh well I, I hear people say well that's china you know everything's wrong in china the way they treat animals well just visit a slaughterhouse or imagine one in the united states in europe in south america anywhere the waste from those animals is splattered onto the meat in the dairy i've been in a cheese factory in france where they had their own dairy, a camembert, and people think, oh, camembert, and you could see 
the fecal matter and the urine that had splatted up the cow's legs and they go into the milking shed. You know, think about this. All these animals carry viruses. Every influenza. Influenza B is a little bit odd because, <clears throat> excuse me, it is carried not as the other ones are by chickens and pigs because that's the origin of the other influenzas A and C and D and so on. Influenza B is carried by seals and ferrets. But if you think about it, seals are hunted, they're eaten, um, people flay their skin and they process it. So they carry the virus and ferrets are factory farmed. You know, ferrets are farmed for hunting and as pets. And wherever you can find animals or wherever you have, I mean, even wasting disease nowadays, you know, from hunters in the West, it's like Kreutzfeldt Jakob. It comes from eating, skinning elk and moose and so on. So leave the animals in peace and they won't come back to bite you. Mm. Amen. Yes, indeed. So I want to ask you, Ingrid, in our world, the animal protection world, there's long been this split, the abolitionists and the welfareists, and you're the most abolitionist person I have ever known and yet you get accused of being a welfareist and I think that's really accusing you of being a pragmatist because you <laughs> want to do what works so help us understand kind of these divisions and how we can just all work together for the animals it's about them it is and I don't quite understand this divisiveness. I, people sometimes like to tear down rather than build up. And they like to find the differences rather than the similarities. And I, I'm always harping on about how we should try not to do that. But it's pretty much human nature. Um, I believe animal welfare is a component of animal rights. I mean, you can do something nice for monkeys or you can do something nice for uh, a dog. Um, but if you understand that kindness is a virtue and you understand that being compassionate is something you strive to be and that being a bully is not desirable, ultimately what you're aiming for surely is to melt away all these barriers that you might have that say, well, I only care about dogs or I only care about sheltering or I only care about this and care about all those things with the ultimate goal of let's care about everything. You know, it's the same thing as people say, well, don't you care about people? Well, you don't have to step over a homeless person to rescue a stray dog. I mean, you don't have to be mean to people to care about other species. It's all one thing. It's one pie. And your heart is big enough to embrace it all. But I do believe that people who say, oh, you shouldn't have helped in that situation or you shouldn't eat say in a restaurant that serves meat because you should only eat in vegan restaurants i don't subscribe to that because i do like the idea not so much of personal purity and although i like the idea of supporting vegan restaurants i like the idea that you get a beyond burger into something like a denny's and there it is on the menu and people who have not thought about animals, may never think about animals, are suddenly thinking, oh, look at that. Maybe I'll try one of those. And or someone with them tries one of them. 
I like the idea of the strategy of inclusion and of mainstreaming our radical ideas. I love that. And connected to that too, Ingrid, tell us how you work with allies, because I think it can be tough sometimes. You're thrilled that someone you know is opposing fur, but they're still eating meat, or they're really into saving companion animals, but they think that animal experimentation in some circumstances is okay. How do we work with them and not be nasty? (laughs) Well, I always think I grew up, I had my first fur coat at 19. My father and I basically ate our way through the animal kingdom. And yet we have always had dogs at home. We loved animals, but we didn't connect the dots. And so I think our job out there is to remember we weren't born knowing this stuff, most of us, or there were certain learning curves. And I do believe that we can facilitate change, even among members of our own family, who are often the most obstinate about changing, by showing, by feeding, by buying gifts that are right, by sharing books. And not, that was not necessarily a plug for animal kind, but social media, sharing videos, funny ones about animals. Beautiful video I saw today. I may be the last person to have seen this, but it's a coyote who is, it's one of those night videos that they take that come on periodically. This coyote, who's obviously young, is at the entrance to a tunnel, a pipe tunnel that goes under a road. And he or she is jumping with joy and looking and out down the hill comes a badger. And the badger, he greets his friend the badger and turns around and hops into the tunnel and the badger and the coyote go just just joyously going down this tunnel. And I thought if I could show that to anyone who has a Canada goose jacket and say, really, you haven't thought about the joy these animals have? I wonder if that coyote, that baby, who is having so much fun, is going to end up, or has ended up, in a steel trap for that bit of trim you've got around your neck, that vile bit of trim that once was beautiful and on an animal. So I think we have to, you can share that video without saying anything to somebody. And then you could say, oh, I just thought, by the way, maybe wait a day, (laughs) say, I just thought, you know that Canada goose jacket? Would you like to take the collar off? It just occurred to me, and I love the expression, it just occurred to me, and maybe we could give it to a wildlife place. And then, of course, join the picket line, let people see everybody. Wonderful in New York to see how many people are protesting outside Canada Goose, for example. But I do think you can feed people, you can buy food, you can take them shopping, you can show them videos, you can share books with them, you can share anecdotes with them, and you can just keep being positive, and sometimes be frank. Mm -hmm. Mm. So we are living in interesting times. Maybe all times are interesting. These seem a little extra interesting. And there's a lot going on in the world, and people are concerned about a lot of things. So how do we keep animal issues in the spotlight when there's so much competition for it? It's tough, I have to say. Uh, We have to keep finding very creative ways to make this serious issue compete with politics and all the other strife and wars and drought and climate change. Of course, 
one of the things is that climate change is on everybody's mind and we have to make sure they don't just give lip service to their concern. So we go all out to show that it's not just um, that something has happened because of industry. It's not um, that. It's the methane. It's the nitrous oxide. It's all the things that are coming from factory farming. It's cutting down the rainforest, not just in Brazil, but all over the place, so that we can grow soybeans to feed cattle and to feed chickens. Chickens are eating tons of soybean. People say to me, well, you know, they're cutting down the rainforest to grow soybeans. Yes, it's not for your tofu. It's that if you want to stop eating soybeans, eat tofu, because don't eat animals, because there's far more soybean in any animal that you can pick. So I think the climate is one thing. Victoria, I would, a lot of people have said, um, look at the fires in Australia, and they're upset about the kangaroos and the koala bears. And I say, please be upset about the sheep. No one cut the fences, you know, to let those sheep out. In the whole of Australia, the sheep farming, and those sheep ran and ran, were burned to death against the fences with nowhere to go. And that's why you should stop buying wool. Can you just give people who are unfamiliar with where wool comes from a little tutorial on that? Yeah, there's so many horrors that are involved with wool. It's funny, people say, oh, you can't be against that because um, shearing is just a haircut. And I think just watch one of the 19 videos where we have been undercover inside shearing sheds on every continent except Antarctica, and you will have a very different impression. If you thought you were horrified, to see dogs in China being beaten over the head and then skinned for leather, you're going to be equally horrified, I guarantee, to see these gentle sheep who shake from stem to stern, being held down a foot on their neck by these guys who are shearing as fast as they can go, because they'll get more pay the more they do, and cutting these sheep to shreds. They'll take off a teat, they'll take off part of an ear, They'll take off all sorts of things. And when the sheep, who are prey animals, they're very afraid. They never want to be held down. They know it's the end of their life. That's what a prey animal thinks. And these men will smash them in the face when they struggle with the metal clippers. They'll kick them down the chute. And in some of our videos, you'll see them twist those sheep's neck until they break it. So I've stood outside the shearing sheds, and I've been inside the shearing sheds, and I've seen it, and those sheep come out, and they are cut, and they are shaken, and they're traumatized, and that is only one of about 15 hideous things that happen to sheep, most wool coming from Australia, and in the end, a lot of those sheep go on live export ships to the Middle East, which is a horror for them. They're family animals. They're deeply gentle, beautiful, wonderful animals. And in the end, they have their throats hung upside down. So don't, don't please, don't buy wool and tell everybody why you won't. Yes, and we will put some uh, wonderful sources for fashions and housewares that are, are non-wool on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. As we will also put links to Amazon and everywhere else where you can get Ingrid Newkirk's amazing new book, Animal Kind. So just in our last minute and a half, Ingrid, you're very focused. What's it like to be you? <laughs> uh, getting older by the minute. Um, 
it's I, I, it's a joy for me, really, honestly. As painful as it is, I cry a lot. I have to steal myself to watch every new video that we bring onto the forum. Um, but uh, I have a purpose in life which I am very grateful for because it means everything to me. I want to stop suffering of animals. I want to stop their slaughter. And I want to get everybody else involved. And every day I think I'm inadequate to the task, but I'll do what I can do. I wish I was smarter. I wish I had more time in the day. I wish I would live longer. But it's really an opportunity, a minute. And I am so grateful that I have this. We are about the same age, and you seem to me absolutely ageless. And I have a feeling that you're so involved in your work that you don't think about that kind of stuff, do you? Oh, yes. I look in the mirror and I think, oh, I wish that I were a pretty girl um, that, you know, would get not a girl, but a pretty young woman that would more easily perhaps be um, somebody they look at on a show and think, well, that's nice. She's fashionable. And look, she's wearing pineapple leather, apple leather. Nobody cares what I'm wearing. <laughs> and uh, no, I, I really, um, I do see that. And I also get a little panicky. Someone said, you know, what if you had a watch that showed how little time you had left versus what time it is today? And I think I'm watching that watch and I'm hurrying as fast as I can, like Alice in Wonderland's character. I, I was in a matcha bar, green, green tea place, and they had an hourglass. It's like, no, <laughs> that is too illustrative. But, Victoria, you're absolutely beautiful. And I think it's your diet, but it's also what comes from inside you. Oh, that's so kind. Well, you're, you're my role model. You got to this planet a few months before me, so that means I get to look up to you in lots and lots of ways. The book, Animal Kind, The Legend, Ingrid Newkirk, The Organization. PETA, got to read the book. Got to join the organization. Love you guys. See you next time. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Do you want to deepen your connection to the divine, speed up your progress on the spiritual path, then tune in to the Spirit Matters podcast. I'm the host, Philip Goldberg, and I interview experts with wisdom, insight, and practical guidance for every seeker of truth. Spirit Matters on the mindbodyspirit.fm network. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.